guys, and welcome back to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. My name is Jack. I have Tierra Nelson sitting across from me, and this is episode 139. We're going to get started with a Q&A today, as per usual. And question number one of the day is how to prevent reactive hypoglycemia after a high-carb pre-gym meal. Boy, what a question to start off with. So should we first define what reactive hypoglycemia is? Yes, that's a good place to start. All right. Well, reactive hypoglycemia essentially means that your blood sugar levels have dropped. And if you were to actually measure your blood glucose levels, you would measure them and they would be below four millimoles per liter. Now, reactive hypoglycemia, I think the definition says that it can happen within four hours of after consuming a meal and symptoms of reactive hypoglycemia aren't very pleasant are they like you Mm. can feel a little bit anxious your heart rate might start to race you know you just feel a little bit stressed you might feel a little bit dizzy you start to feel a little bit hungry those symptoms of just having low blood sugar levels Mm. and you're like whoa i need to eat something Mm. (laughs) yeah and i think it's it's probably more common than people might think Mm. and Do you know that I get described this by a lot of clients where they eat a meal, particularly around midday, and then they might get quite tired, Mm. like the midday slump. And I'm not sure if that's partly due to reactive hypoglycemia, but Mm. definitely one of the symptoms of hypoglycemia is fatigue. Yeah. So that could certainly be playing a role there. Oh, without a doubt. Mm. Yeah. So it is, depending on what definition you look at, it can be considered a precursor to diabetes, Mm. but I don't think it's a very reliable precursor. Mm. But unfortunately, some diabetics can run into this issue if they haven't dosed their insulin correctly Mm. with the amount of carbohydrates that they've eaten, because perhaps if you've taken up too much insulin, but you haven't eaten a sufficient amount of carbohydrates or, you know, the calculations just don't work out quite well, you can unfortunately suffer from hypoglycemia. Mm. But for someone who isn't a diabetic, who isn't injecting insulin, for them, uh, just an average gym goer who might be having a high carbohydrate meal prior to the gym with great intentions, right? Get those carbs in me that I'm going to go train the house down. But unfortunately, things don't go as planned and you start feeling pretty crummy instead of really strong and energetic. How can we combat this, Jack? Yeah, so I would usually see that as a sign that your meal composition could be tweaked slightly Mm. to basically slow down the absorption of carbohydrates because usually when we look at a blood glucose curve, a reactive hypoglycemia might happen when you get a massive spike in blood glucose and then it plummets rapidly Mm. as well, which is like kind of the, the typical generic sort of graph we would see for someone who develops diabetes is when they have that huge spike and then huge plummet and Mm. their blood they get hypoglycemia like hyperglycemia followed by hypo and obviously just because you get that spike doesn't mean you're going to get diabetes but it's kind of just like that generic medical Mm -hmm. graph that we got shown quite a lot at university but also that in the case of diabetes that puts a lot of pressure on your pancreas obviously Mm. because if you're taking up a huge bolus of carbohydrates all at once and your blood glucose levels are raising enormously then that's putting high demands on your pancreas to secrete a lot of insulin Mm. but then if that's happening time and time and time again then unfortunately you can develop insulin resistance but that's a whole nother story 
Let's talk about the healthy folk who aren't mm-hmm. quite running into those issues. They're just... And it's usually when you don't exercise after that as well. Mm. So just thought I'd throw that out there. But if you are getting that massive spike followed by the slump, probably enabling a slower spike in blood glucose mm-hmm. over time would be recommended. Hence, you hear a lot about like low GI foods or mm. basically carbohydrates contain more fiber. You can also add more dietary fat into your meal as well. Mm-hmm. Basically, those are the two main reasons that'll be most useful for slowing down that digestion and the blood glucose spike. Mm -hmm. Because we're always told in the health and fitness industry, you know, try to prioritize carbohydrates peri-workout. So before and after your workout, try to have a large bolus of carbohydrates. But that kind of has turned into the misconception that carbohydrates only or only carbohydrates and protein and no dietary fat as low a fiber as possible because people are trying to speed up that digestion they're like i want it now right so they're trying to consume a lot of carbohydrates but it's almost like it's happening too quickly so Mm. you really want that perfect balance of yes still getting a sufficient amount of glucose into your bloodstream to spike your blood glucose level so you can sustain of relatively high blood glucose levels and have energy, but you don't want to experience such a spike at such a fast rate that you experience the, the negative consequences of hypoglycemia. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You don't just have to consume the sh- super sugary cereal like Fruit, Fruit Loops. Loops. Yeah, with, with a protein shake and very minimal dietary fat. And then pre and post workout, you can consume some dietary fat in your pre and your post workout meal mm. and some fiber we have too. Guides on each of these. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. Check out the bodybuilding dietitians on Instagram. But personally, I would say around it, like at least five grams, but probably closer to 10 grams pre workout mm. so that you have sustained energy and more like controlled blood glucose going from your small intestine into your bloodstream so that you still are getting that energy but it's at more of a controlled rate Mm, totally and everyone will be a little different and i completely agree with you that like your your meal shouldn't just look like one source of very refined carbohydrates with little fat and and dietary fiber that's Mm. probably especially if you're having that on a fairly empty stomach you're gonna, your blood sugar is gonna go through the roof. Like for example, if you train after breakfast and then at breakfast you're having some Fruit Loops with a protein shake, then yeah, it's it's gonna spike quite drastically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, again, you go to the gym with good intentions, but you end up not having a very good workout. So in most circumstances, guys, when in doubt, have a well-balanced meal. Mm. <laughs> and we have to remember that pre-workout carbohydrates, they really are for the purpose of spiking blood glucose levels. If you're actually trying to store carbohydrates in terms of muscle glycogen, that's going to be determined by the carbohydrates you're eating in like the 24 to 72 hours prior to that actual workout. So even if you're training later in the afternoon, you don't have to hoard all of your carbohydrates just for your pre-workout meal. I'm personally under the impression you should still be fueling the day, still have an adequate breakfast and lunch with a decent amount of carbohydrates, still have some carbohydrates pre-workout, but that way you just get the best of both worlds. You have some muscle glycogen, but you also have sustained blood glucose levels too. Hmm, I agree. I think the only other thing to be wary of is like there's two sides to the coin. Like either you don't have enough dietary fiber and you get that spike or you have too much dietary fiber and you feel sick during your mm-hmm. workout. Or it stimulates too much gut motility and you have mm. to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pre-workout does that anyway. 
but let's give some let's give some numbers here all right so in terms of dietary fat slowing down the rate of blood glucose absorption i would recommend at least like 10 grams pre-workout mm. and your post-workout meal at least five grams but probably in the realms of five to 15 15 20 it can just be a well-balanced meal for mm. the average person yeah the average person like the speed of digestion post-workout unless you're training twice a day it's just not as a prior as much of a priority as what social media makes it mm -hmm. out to be yeah unless you're an athlete doing like triple training sessions a day and you really have to be prioritizing like getting as much glucose into you as possible to try to speed up that rate of muscle glycogen synthesis mm. yeah balanced meals are really the way to go but pre-workout 10 grams of fat how much fiber would you say jack it's going to depend a lot on the individual mm. Like I have 60 grams of fiber a day around so that I probably have about 15 grams or even 15 to 20 in my breakfast, mm. which is my pre-workout. But someone who consumes 30 grams a day, like they might have more of like five to 10 grams of mm. fiber. But I think even just having, yeah, probably around five to 10 grams, to be honest. Yeah, that'd be yeah. fine. And then pre-workout, try to get in a protein source. So try to get in at least... 0.4 to 0.55 grams per kilogram of body weight from an HBV protein source. For the average person, that's going to land anywhere between probably like 20 to 35 grams of protein from an animal source. And then in terms of actual carbohydrates, the intestine can actually only uptake so many carbohydrates at a time. So per hour, we're actually only capable of absorbing around 60 grams of glucose and 30 grams of fructose at a time and that goes for everyone like the rate limiting factor there really is the speed of absorption through our intestines but for carbohydrates i'd say that you're having at least like you know 30 grams or so pre-workout but mm. again it's just for that purpose of spiking blood glucose levels yeah 30 grams is definitely a minimum mm. and it just depends what phase you're in if yeah. you're eating 500 grams of carbs a day then 30 okay. grams isn't quite going to cut it not <laughs> quite no but like if you're in a dieting phase you know mm. and let's say you're training in the afternoon and you had some carbohydrates at breakfast some carbohydrates at lunch and you're only on like 150 grams of carbohydrates per day if you had a pre-workout meal around 3 or 4 p.m in the afternoon i think around 30 grams is decent to allocate for that mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it just depends. Cool. Well, this question is somewhat relevant and it says reducing protein feedings a day, but upping the amount per meal to equate relevant to muscle gain. So for example, four protein feedings instead of five, but my pro total daily protein intake is still the same. Mm. So I think gone are the days where people think they have to eat like every two hours or you mm. have to eat six or eight times a day but also hopefully fingers crossed gone are the days where people think that they can achieve just as good of results only eating one meal mm. per day so yeah, like everything is, somewhere in the middle yeah this is very relevant for people who intermittent fast and resistance train as well because intermittent fasting can be a very popular technique for weight loss because you might do let's say 20 and 20 20 and 4 sorry where you fast for 20 hours, have a four hour window of eating. And I always say to people who come to me fasting that if you want to prioritize retaining muscle or building muscle, then fasting is not the best way to do that. <laughs> yeah, but if you're solely just focused on losing tissue, I almost think of fast, it just kind of makes me laugh the whole idea of like, I wanna lose weight, ah, <laughs> I have an idea, I just won't eat. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, and obviously you still have to eat in an energy deficit in that eating period, but it's a lot easier to do that if you don't have that much yeah. time. And actually, there's interesting literature coming out to show that how you actually periodize your meals throughout the day, regardless of total energy intake across that 24-hour window, will actually dictate your energy availability. So mm. if you are actually fasting for long periods in the early hours of the morning and you're pushing your first meal of the day all the way back till 1 or 2 p.m. and you're still trying to diet, that's actually not doing your total daily energy availability a favor. Mm. So you'll probably have to diet on even less calories too. So mm. that's just something to watch out for as well. Going for long periods without eating that is not a good idea for energy availability. Yeah, and to address protein, the range we usually give is three to five protein feedings a day. And we think the golden number there is again in between, so around four. Like I don't, to be honest, there's not too much difference between three and four, but four has been shown to be better significantly. Mm -hmm. And I say significantly as in the research, like the p-value there, better than three. But I think any more than four, it's more out of convenience and preference mm -hmm. rather than effectiveness. Yeah, but even then, if you're doing over four, and it depends on your total body weight, but you just run into issues of like, okay, well, I still want to be hitting at least 0 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight of an HBV source at each meal. But then if I start going over four, then my protein intake for the day is going to have to be quite high or if I'm getting just my protein from animal sources I'm going to have to purposely seek out lower protein foods like your grains and your vegetables that all have these trace sources of protein so that's that's another thing to consider as well mm, totally yeah it's um I think four is a pretty golden number mm. for me personally. Yeah, because the whole purpose of a protein feeding is trying to spike that muscle protein synthesis. And if you are only having like 15 grams of total protein in that one feeding, then you're not quite getting that two grams of leucine mm. and you're not quite fully stimulating muscle protein synthesis. It's probably like 65% or something like that. So four really is a golden number there. And I think yeah. four aligns quite nicely as well with eating within like a 12 hour feeding window so that you can have that 12 hour fasting window just for rest and digest and give your digestive system a little bit of a break. But then you can still obviously stimulate muscle protein synthesis every three hours or so. You can still eat fairly regularly throughout the day to sustain your energy levels, to keep you satiated. So it is kind of like a golden number. Hey guys, just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes, but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Therefore, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively, click the link in the show notes below. Cool, so this next question says, opinions on the glute drive machine versus barbell hip thrust. What's your opinion? <laughs> I I think a lot of it comes down to preference, but I'll, I do have a preference, which is the glute drive machine now. And I think you are able to change the tension of the movement and bias certain aspects of the movement more favorably with the glute drive. And for example, like we have these glute drive machines at Weldrum Brisbane, and you can band them which kind of biases certain aspects of the movement. So if you ban the glute drive machine, it's much harder in that ladder 
20 to 30% of the movement when you're thrusting upwards. And that will, like we know that that is the most important aspect for glute stimulation. Mm. So you can't really do that very effectively on a barbell hip thrust. Mm. Yeah, you really do get that peak contraction when you are fully in that thrusted Mm. position at the top. Yeah. And I know if you're not following N1 training or Cass, uh, Coach Cassim on Instagram, I highly recommend it. He's uh, puts out a lot of informative content around training. And one of his exercises he coined, like everyone, a lot of people probably know the cast pull down, which is where you do that single arm pull down on the bench, either kneeling on the bench or kneeling on the ground. It's very, very popular now. But he also has the cast hip thrust, which is basically, it almost looks like a half rep hip thrust where you're you're really just going down about halfway and thrusting up again Mm. just because that's the most important aspect of the hip thrust yeah especially like that's we have to remember guys with the hip thrust right like it's a movement pattern similar to how i would say a squat or a chest press on a bench that's a movement pattern and initially we only had the opportunity to do these movement patterns with free weight barbells so you had a barbell hip thrust you had a barbell squat you had a barbell bench but the beauty is is that man machines these days are just incredible and they're really catching on to okay how can i take this movement pattern but make it even more effective because we have to remember the ultimate goal is to stimulate and grow your muscles and I've been in that boat before as well. I did barbell hip thrusts for years at UQ Sport. I was basically married to them. I did them like three times a week and we didn't have a hip thrust machine at that gym. And that's when it was going around the fitness industry. Like the thrust is a must. And like the barbell hip thrust is a must. And then once these machines started to come out, like I'm not sure how to describe it, Jack, but it was almost like hard to admit that wow, I actually feel a way better connection and stimulus on this booty builder compared Mm. to my 160 kilogram hip thrust or something. Mm. And like, it was hard to admit that at first, but then you just have to remember like, push your ego aside, right? There's no one must do exercise. And if something can get the job done in a better way and it can grow the muscles in a more effective way, then accept that there's nothing to be ashamed of (laughs) i think everyone goes through those sort of things with their barbell squats with their barbell bent their barbell hip thrust their conventional deadlifts it's hard to let go when you're like damn something else actually works better (laughs) Mm. yeah as you said it's kind of just like comparing any other two exercises which are fairly synonymous like Mm. a barbell squat or a hack squat or a machine chest press versus a dumbbell chest press like they're just two different movements of or two different ways of achieving a very similar goal yeah and the great thing about hip thrust again is that everyone these days wants to grow their butt so a lot of i think gym equipment companies are really catching on to this and now like hip thrust machines and glute drive machines and booty builders like it's almost uncommon now to not see them in well-equipped commercial gyms but i find that i'm actually having this conversation now quite regularly with a lot of my clients because they initially might have been at a gym that they only had access to free weight barbells so we were doing barbell hip thrusts but now they've signed up to a new gym and has this awesome glute drive or something and they're they approach me and they're like you know, I like, I actually genuinely feel much better connection with this machine. I'm like, you don't have to apologize by any means. Let's use, let's use the glute drive twice a week. Let's just work mm. in a different rep range with a different weight sort of thing. So yeah, personally for, I'm all for a really good 
hip thrust machine over freeway barbells now. And that goes for a lot of machines, to be honest. The only thing is <laughs> they have this hip thrust set up at World's Gym Mount Gravatt that just... It, it didn't really take into consideration people with long limbs and tall people. Jack, do you, do you know the one that I'm talking about? Yeah, it's a bit too close together. Yeah. Everything's f- for someone who's about five foot, I would say. It's so silly. At the very end of like the hip thrust platform, they've got this big metal pole. And mm. you know that when you want to do a hip thrust, you need to like, sh- like you're starting from the ground, you need to stretch out your legs fully so you can roll that bar over top of you. Mm. But like my legs are too long, so they hit this pole. My knees are bent and like, it's just so awkward. I just need them to like saw that thing off, yeah. <laughs> put in a special request. Yo, <laughs> I got long femurs over here. <laughs> Some hip thrust machines just aren't that great either. So I would just try both, see what mm-hmm. your preference is and choose from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's no denying as well that it is a hell of a lot more convenient to load up a hip thrust machine or, you know, hop on a booty builder and clip in a little belt compared to setting up mm, a no barbell hip thrust. And oh, it, it's, it's, it was almost tough for me too because in the past, especially in dieting phases, like I would look at my barbell hip thrusts as a way to increase my levels of neat. Cause like, you know, you have to set up the bar and put on all the plates and set up the bench and all this stuff. But I like, I had that sort of attitude. I was like, okay, cool. Burning a a little bit of extra energy here, setting up my hip thrusts. And I almost got territorial over them. Like sometimes nice dudes in the gym are like, oh, hey, do you need help on racking that? And like out loud, I'd be like, oh no, thank you. I've got it. But in my head, I'm like, stay back. Don't you dare lift my weights. (laughs) Have you ever been like that in a dieting phase when you're like, come on, every movement counts? Uh, Sort of, yeah. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. You just obviously want to keep that neat high because you're just, you're aware that you are trying to conserve energy. So if you Mm. see an opportunity to expend energy, right? Like sometimes you're like, okay, cool. I should probably take that. Mm. Yeah. I know what you mean for sure. You want to be as inefficient as possible. Yes, exactly. So this next question says, dropping cardio and steps post-show, how much would you do to kickstart a reverse? Oh, well, it depends on where their steps are at and how much cardio that they're doing. Mm, Totally. That would be my answer. But I guess to provide some more tangible information there, it's, it's really tough. Like I would say, bring your steps down to... A, a fairly manageable level mm. again that's very gray as well it's not a black and white answer but for someone like me i would quite comfortably do around 10 to twelve thousand steps each day as part of my routine in prep it was more like about fifteen thousand, and therefore i brought my steps down by about five thousand mm. a day and in terms of cardio well i wasn't doing any cardio but I would do that of a similar story. Like how much does the client enjoy doing? I would potentially even take cardio out mm. completely from the from the beginning because ultimately you want to promote weight gain in that initial phase. So by lowering their expenditure and increasing their calories, you obviously achieve that. And a lot of the time you become so efficient at cardiovascular stuff, particularly steps by the end of prep that even when you take it out, it doesn't really even influence Mm. energy expenditure as much as you might think, particularly steps. Cardio is a little bit different depending on the modality. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it really just depends on where are you starting off from and what's what is your ultimate goal. But in terms of steps, you said it exactly right. Like bring it down to a level where you would normally walk. But mm-hmm. also like if you if you have an office job and you drive to work sort of thing, like yeah, you're probably still going to have to hit 8 to 10k per day sort of thing, even if it's more convenient for you to only hit two to three <laughs> mm. but, i think ten thousand is a is a nice or ten to twelve thousand is a nice range for the yeah, off season yeah and an amount of walking that like you get enjoyment from you're still moving your body but you don't quite feel like you're at that point where you're going out of your way to just go on random walks mm. or you always feel obliged to just be pacing around or like if you get an opportunity like oh might as well walk it up and down the hallway sort of thing so if that balance is going to be individual for everyone and then the ultimate goal for cardio is to bring that down to a level of enjoyment and just doing cardiovascular exercise purely for health not for the means of increasing energy expenditure and Mm. burning body fat so really changing your mindset around it but if someone was only doing one or two cardio sessions a week yeah, you probably could consider eliminating that. Unless they genuinely really enjoyed it, then you might just slightly bring down the intensity. Mm. But if someone was doing like cardio every single day and then they're going straight into their reverse diet, I wouldn't personally be like, cut it all out every single day. Perhaps I might bring it down to just like two or three days a week sort of thing. Like maybe still do 20 or 30 minutes of cardio on your rest days and then just your training days, you're just doing resistance training. but it, it just depends on where you're starting from. Mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Totally, the, everyone, every competitor is different. Mm-hmm. And I think what you said there about like potentially putting the cardio on the rest day, that could potentially Mm. be a valid option. Because it's not just about expending energy or gaining body fat and maintaining body fat and stuff like that. Like we really have to think of it from a psychological standpoint too. Like from what someone is so used to, we generally respond better when things come at ease rather than just going cold turkey on a lot of things. So yeah, I think a case study would be useful for that question, but we don't really have one. So mm-hmm. I think we've pro- provided some valuable insight there. And we'll move on to another question though, which says, and this will probably be the last one of the episode, but any tips on dealing with anxiety to match pre- previous gym session performance? I'm not progressing at the moment. Those are like two very different things in one, I feel. Well, I think he's relating like he's not progressing and he gets some anxiety associated with gym session performance, mm-hmm. like other two related potentially. And I think we can comfortably say that we both get some sort of anxiety before uh, our top sets in the gym and mm. some of those earlier exercises like Bulgarians for Tierra, hack squat and RDLs for me. And definitely the anxiety is more so associated with the lower body lifts yeah. than upper body. I can confidently say I don't ever get anxious over like a shoulder press. <laughs> mm. I don't get, I do get a little bit of nerves more so with not the difficulty of it, but more so the retention of numbers or mm. progression of numbers. I can definitely get myself psyched up, but mm. I don't necessarily like anticipate it or get really nervous over it. But also you have to remember that guys, like if you are at that level where you are feeling a little bit of anxiousness, like, and you are anticipating your lifts because they're going to be tough 
embrace that because that actually means that you're training at a level of intensity that's really challenging you Mm. and you care about your training too so trying to just change your mindset when you're actually approaching it but at the same time it is completely normal to feel an elevation in heart rate Mm. and and you know an increased respiratory rate and just like have your head thinking about oh my god i'm just about to put myself through this very demanding task but how can you manage that yeah, well, I the reason I laughed is because you just said like, oh, change your mindset. I, it's not quite that easy. Well, I, think. I explained what to do first and then I suggested, you know, you just have to reframe your way of thinking. Just don't be depressed. Just no, be that's not what I said. I didn't say just don't be anxious. <laughs> I'm asking you, Jack, what are some strategies people can use to cope with gym anxiety when it comes to lift and heavy? Yeah, well, as you said, I don't think it's realistic to not have any mm-hmm. because having a little bit of anxiety or nerves is just a sign that you're invested in the outcome and that Mm -hmm. you want to progress and that it is difficult. And I'd be worried if a particular exercise wasn't difficult. You also have to remember that it's probably going to help your performance too. Like this normal response of an elevation in your sympathetic nervous system and an increase in heart rate, increase in respiratory rate, increased blood pressure, right? Like increased adrenaline and norepinephrine, like that's actually preparing you for what's to come. So you're actually probably going to perform better because of those physiological factors Mm. that are occurring. Like if you feel calm as hell and then try to get under a super heavy hack squat and your head's not in the right place and your cardiovascular system's not in the right place, you're probably not going to perform that well either. I agree, yeah. There's definitely a, a balance in between. And I think my only piece of advice really is don't try and create a more sympathetic environment if you're already on sympathetic overload. And for example, like don't listen to really crazy heavy metal. If you're feeling quite overwhelmed, then driving more sympathetic factors into that, like really high dosing caffeine or really like heavy metal screamo rock or something or like hard style or something like it's not really going to lessen those that anxiety. It might even make it greater. Mm. So I think also practicing mindfulness and just thinking deeply about like what is contributing to that those nerves and being realistic about okay how much is a a reasonable amount to expect Mm -hmm. and yeah those are like because i have this every single lower body session like for rdls before hacks but before your rdls before your hacks we know that you always caffeinate but yeah so you don't turn on your heaviest music but you turn on the what medium heavy music (laughs) Well, it depends what how I'm feeling. So if I'm feeling not that great, then I probably won't choose something too intense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've actually started decreasing my caffeine. So like the serving size of the caffeine that I was using all throughout prep and even up until a couple months ago, it's 13 grams. Mm. Uh, not 13 grams of caffeine, but of the pre-workout powder. And now I'm having like eight or nine grams. Mm-hmm. So almost two-thirds of the recommended dose yeah really because like i was just get too much caffeine and it wasn't really doing me any favors Mm -hmm. i think that kind of almost goes back to the very first question i'm pretty sure high doses of caffeine can actually assist with greater levels of glucose uptake from the small intestine into your bloodstream so that can actually even help to raise your blood glucose levels Mm. as well but then we have to remember too that like if you are exercising a lot, like you don't need insulin to take that glucose up into your cells either. Mm. Your cells are already stimulating GLUT4, 
so that you can actually take that blood glucose levels up. So that would even be contributing to your low blood glucose levels as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think I don't have too much else to say on this. I really think that more people, it would help if more people were anxious about their performance because it would mean they're training with adequate intensity yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. It means that you're really pushing yourself. It means that you care and it mm. means that you really love your training as well. But what I would say, what really helps me is just visualization and just self-belief, just mentally preparing for it, like actually visualizing exactly what it's going to be like during that movement, like how you're going to set up, how you're going to pick up the weights, how you're going to breathe, like actually visualize that experience. And also remind yourself that if like, let's say this is a really heavy lift for you, let's say it's a barbell RDL and you're lifting 180 kilograms or something, you've probably done 177.5 before, or you've mm. probably done 180 before, but maybe for six reps, not for seven reps. Like you have to remind yourself too, that like, I've done it before. I can do it again. It's just about that very positive self-talk as mm. well. And just telling yourself like, I've got this. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the worst that can happen? I drop the weight. Mm. <laughs> but also this is why we encourage people to not train to failure so that that's even a thought in your mind that you could fail like you could actually crumble under a weight like we want you to really train hard with intensity and intelligence but if you really really had to you should be able to push out at least one more rep so you shouldn't always be training to failure so you shouldn't necessarily feel anxious going to these sets depending scared. on the lift i think a lot of people listening would call us hypocrites right now because mm. they've seen how I train at least okay, on my but Instagram. Again, this is for upper body though, yeah. like a shoulder press. But mm. I don't personally go to failure on huge compounds. Like mm. I'm not going to fail on a Bulgarian split squat or, or a Smith machine lunge and crumble under that. Like you're not going to purposely fail on a barbell RDL or something no. or a hack. No, I, I definitely wouldn't fail on a RDL. Mm -hmm. I might fail on a hack. I've done it a few times this improvement season, but yeah, I haven't not for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if you're obviously getting all of these feelings coming up on a reoccurring basis too, it might actually be a sign as well that potentially you need to deload or potentially mm. you just need to take a look over your program again, or you and your coach need to look over your program again and be like, every single exercise is making me super anxious. And if you're always feeling anxious, you could argue you're not going to be performing at your best either. And you're not in you're not looking forward to your training every session. Like we don't look forward to every single training session, but if you're constantly just not looking forward to training at all and it genuinely frightens you, then you need to kind of question a few things. Mm. Cool. So that pretty much wraps up this episode. Fantastic. And we'll finish on one thing that we learned this week. Jack, what'd you learn? So I learned something from my client, actually, indirectly from my client, so I actually got asked this question twice in one week and the first client, he'll probably actually find out from me answering it now because I forgot to tell him. But yeah, the second client, I did some research and it was about eating raw flour. And I've always eaten raw flour and I haven't had any issues. And I've always assumed that when people say, oh, don't eat raw flour, it's actually associated with like the eggs because usually when you mix raw flour with something, it has eggs in it because of cakes and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but apparently you can't eat some raw flowers because it's not pasteurized. So there's still some bacteria there from the grain. Uh, even processing it, like creating white flour, like it's still not enough processing because it's not heat treated to, to actually kill the bad bacteria. So yeah, 
that goes to show like probably shouldn't be eating raw flour yeah guys you should bake your cakes mm. <laughs> so i'm i still even now eat some raw flour because I'll, I'll make like a cream of wheat or a microwave cake and like i won't cook it all the way through mm. so i'm running that risk i guess i guess you are i've never thought of that but mm. god but like the best thing about making cookies and brownies and stuff is eating the batter and that's mm. all raw yeah combined with the raw eggs touch wood i've never gotten sick mm. yeah i don't think many people have to worry mm-hmm. just yeah. a heads up just a heads up but mm-hmm. what did you learn this week all right well this week i learned that some dogs will mark their territory wherever they freely wish so on the weekend i decided to treat myself to a beach day and i drove myself down to the dog beach and i was just laying on my back chilling out in the sun and this super cute kelpie ran up to me, right? And I put out my hand to give him a little a little chin scratch, but he stopped about one inch away from my fingers, cocked his leg, and then peed right on the corner of my towel, right near my feet. And I was like, yo, what the heck? And I jumped up and <laughs> he gave me this little dog grin and then he ran down the beach. And then the owners were walking up the beach. It was... <laughs> Actually, I don't know if they were the owners. They were just these two two dudes and they couldn't stop laughing. And one of them yelled out at me. He was like, uh, it's not my fault. It's my mom's dog. <laughs> and they I just... smelt salmon Boston. All I said was, at least I have a story to tell. Mm. And now I can tell it on the TBD podcast. But dude, I, I couldn't believe it. I wanted to give that little guy's noggin a little scratch. And he just peed right on my towel. Yeah, well, I guess it's indirectly Salmon Boston's fault. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I think that dog just needs to be toilet trained. Mm. Yeah, or at least taught like where to go and where not to go. How to be considerate, you know? Mm. Anyway, that was my story. That's what I learned this week. If you have a dog, please like teach it not to pee on people. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, it's... Well, I know my dog, my family's dog has done that a few times on it, people's bags and stuff. But yeah. It's not... And, and I don't it's not dog. your territory i'll tell you that it's my towel yeah, it's not it's not <laughs> that they need to use the bathroom it's just mark of territory <laughs> anyway that's what we learned this week guys hope you enjoyed this podcast if you did please remember to take a screenshot post it to your instagram stories tag jack tag myself tag the bodybuilding dietitians and we'll catch you next week